Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures. Every Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing the fascinating life and mysterious disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, the godfather of the American Labor Union. If you want to listen to any previous episode, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review. Jimmy came from humble beginnings and rose to be incredibly successful, in many ways personifying the American dream. He was a hero to many, a man who helped mold one of the most powerful organizations for working-class laborers in the history of the United States, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. By the time he retired, his labor union had become a force to be reckoned with. Over two million Americans belonged to his union, and he successfully fought to give them better working conditions and reasonable pay. He supported Martin Luther King Jr. and desegregated unions, and his work for the labor unions transformed the American workforce as we know it. But there was a darker side to Jimmy Hoffa. Like a moth to the flame, he was drawn to dangerous men and formed lifelong friendships with mobsters. His mob ties and questionable methods created powerful enemies who would stop at nothing to destroy him, and the mobsters he befriended may have been the cause of his death. Whether you're discussing his contributions to the labor workforce, his tumultuous relationship with mobsters and with America's royal family, the Kennedys, or his infamous disappearance, Jimmy's life was filled with mystery and intrigue. Jimmy commanded the national spotlight for much of his adult life, and the events surrounding his disappearance continue to dumbfound and intrigue historians and conspiracy theorists alike. In order to truly appreciate his legacy, we need to get to know the hard-working, hard-headed boy from Indiana. Born James Riddle Hoffa on Valentine's Day in 1913, Jimmy was the third of four children born to John and Viola Hoffa. John was Pennsylvania Dutch, and his ancestors had migrated from Pennsylvania to Indiana in the 1800s. Jimmy's mother, Viola, was an Irish immigrant, the family was poor and struggled to make ends meet. The population of Jimmy's birthplace of Brazil, Indiana, had increased rapidly in the years following 1871 after surveyors realized the area was rich in coal. Young men flocked to the town to labor in the deep shaft mines under dangerous conditions. But by the time Jimmy was born in 1913, Brazil was already entering an economic decline. Riches were concentrated in the hands of the behemoth companies that owned the mines, leaving the coal miners themselves impoverished and frustrated. The townspeople of Brazil dealt with their unhappiness by drowning their sorrows in alcohol. Saloons, which played host to bar fights and homicides, as well as the usual alcoholics, proliferated on Meridian Street, a.k.a. Bloody Row, near Jimmy's house. Many coal miners coped with their troubles by seeking out sex workers and gambling houses. Jimmy's uncle even owned a gambling house in town. When Jimmy was born, corporate corruption and class disparity were at an all-time high in the United States. Simple things like indoor plumbing were an unattainable luxury when Jimmy's father was only bringing in $6 a week. 
Accounting for inflation, that's roughly $151 a week in 2017. It was not easy for Jimmy's father to support a family of six. Jimmy's father, John, worked as a coal mine driller for a prospector named Ben Mershon. Mershon frequently required John to join him on trips out of town to look for new sources of coal. The work was both dangerous and arduous. During World War I, the wages of the town's coal miners stagnated as workers discovered that several of Brazil's mines had no coal left to extract. Religion was a popular balm for ills in Brazil. However, Jimmy's family attended the first Christian church largely out of a sense of societal obligation. Jimmy later wrote, we weren't a very religious family. Jimmy was forced to attend Sunday school along with his brother, but found it boring and had trouble paying attention. From childhood throughout the rest of his life, Jimmy was motivated primarily by material and economic concerns, not religious faith. In 1920, John came home from a coal mining trip deathly ill. He died a week later at just 39 years old. Seven-year-old Jimmy and the rest of his family were devastated. Though a cause of death was never officially determined for Jimmy's father, the boy suspected his father's death was connected to the terrible working conditions in the coal mines. Many coal miners suffered terrible deaths, either from preventable accidents in the mines or from black lung, aka coal workers' pneumoconiosis. Coal workers inhaled deadly dust particles from coal as they drilled, and the dust resided in their lungs permanently, putting them at risk for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, where they struggled to breathe. The term black lung was coined from the horrific fact that the workers' lungs turned black from the inhaled coal dust. Black lung or not, John's death hit the family hard. Jimmy's mother, Viola, was now the breadwinner and responsible for supporting the large family. But men and women were not equal citizens with the same job prospects. Women had only gained the right to vote in 1920, the same year John died. There weren't a lot of jobs available for Viola. Viola and the children moved to the Little Italy section of Clinton, Indiana, to be near Viola's sister. Viola soon opened a business called Hoffa Home Laundry. Jimmy and the other children helped their mother wash coal miners' clothes. Jimmy picked up the filthy clothes from the miners and dropped the clean clothes off. He helped keep the fires burning under the outdoor laundry tubs where Viola did her washing. And he made sure the customers paid for their clean clothes, fetching and bringing his mother the family's earnings. But Clinton was growing progressively more volatile and violent. The mafia was active in Little Italy, and the Ku Klux Klan was getting aggressive. Mines in Clinton closed, depriving Viola of the customer base for her washing business. So in 1924, when Jimmy was 11, Viola moved the family to Detroit and an apartment on Merritt Street. Viola initially worked as a clothes presser, but she eventually got a job at a General Motors factory. She worked on the assembly line for four years before getting a new job at the Fisher Fleetwood plant as a radiator cap polisher. Because women like Viola were paid low salaries and had no opportunity to move up to supervisor positions, the Hoffa children once again needed to help keep the family afloat. Jimmy, always ready to help his mother, got a weekend job at a local grocery store. It was because of his determination to help his family financially that Jimmy dropped out of school just as he was set to enter high school around 1927. The poverty the family struggled with after his father's death meant Jimmy prioritized his family's financial stability over everything else in life. 
He started out working at Frank and Cedar's dry goods and general merchandise store, earning $2 a day and bringing each week's salary home to his mother. At 14, he was working full-time as a delivery boy and soon after began unloading trucks at Kroger, a national grocery store chain that is still immensely successful to this day. Though the pay was low and conditions weren't great, Jimmy was lucky to have his job at Kroger. The Great Depression hit on October 29, 1929. Struggling families like Jimmy's were hit hard by the Great Depression. There were fewer jobs than ever. Wages were low before the Great Depression, and its arrival did nothing to improve that. In fact, the only thing on the rise was tension. People were angry and afraid, desperate, and there was no end in sight. Fighting for scraps, there was little anyone could do. If you spoke out against the absurdly low wages and unethical practices of a company, you could kiss your job goodbye. And Jimmy couldn't afford to lose his job, not when his mother and siblings were counting on him. But at the same time, Jimmy wasn't going to take his employer's abuse lying down. Jimmy earned 32 cents an hour unloading produce from delivery trucks for Kroger, but he only got paid when he was actually unloading trucks. Kroger made employees come in every afternoon and spend 12-hour shifts waiting for potential Kroger trucks to arrive, and they weren't paid for all those hours they spent waiting around. Jimmy was younger than a fair share of his co-workers, but that didn't make him any less vocal about the unfairness of their situation. Jimmy took the first big steps of his long, arduous career as the champion of laborers at that Detroit grocery store. The long hours, terrible pay, and unfair practices may have sucked the life out of some of his co-workers, but it only served to fuel Jimmy's determination for a better life. He was already a member of a small, local union, but they didn't have any power. Recruitment was difficult. At the time, no one had any job security, but that didn't deter Jimmy. It was at that Detroit Kroger on April 13, 1930, that Jimmy took a stand. Literally. Jimmy rallied his co-workers and demanded fair wages and safe labor practices. Jimmy and his fellow employees wanted to be seen, heard, and valued. Jimmy's protest began on the heels of a large delivery full to the brim with perishable goods. Strawberries, to be exact. The produce needed to be unloaded and put into refrigerated cars as quickly as possible, which meant there was a ticking time bomb on their protest. If their needs weren't met, or at least in some way addressed, the company was set to lose a considerable profit as the fruit spoiled. The protest worked. By convincing his fellow employees to protest and renegotiate their salaries, Jimmy was able to get his team a 13-cent raise. His actions garnered the attention of a local union, and union members immediately reached out to bring Jimmy on board. Jimmy wasn't even 20, but he was quickly gaining the respect of his peers and found himself in a position of leadership as vice president of the company union. Unfortunately, in 1931, when the time came for his employers to renew the agreement that Jimmy had negotiated the year before, they refused. This setback cost Jimmy his vice president position. Jimmy didn't stay with Kroger much longer. While his sharp wit and fiery personality made him a great pick for fighting on the behalf of workers in a union, it didn't exactly make him a desirable employee. Kroger fired Jimmy in 1935. Luckily, he'd caught the eye of local union leader R.J. Bennett. 
It wasn't long before the Detroit Teamsters Joint Council 43, Local 299, recruited Jimmy as an organizer at Bennett's urging. Jimmy's new position would catapult him onto the national stage. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now back to the story. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters, IBT, or Teamsters for short, was formed in 1903 by merging two rival labor unions at the urging of the American Federation of Labor. There were several labor unions in play at this time. The Teamsters was just one of them. From day one, their goal was to organize and support labor workers by striving for steady employment and fair wages. Getting in at the lowest level, Jimmy's involvement with the Teamsters launched his career as a union organizer. Among the hordes of people disheartened by the Great Depression, Jimmy stood out even more for his perseverance and bravado. The local 299 was nothing to write home about when Jimmy came into the picture. Its numbers were underwhelming, and its members were dispirited. What many would have seen as a dead end, Jimmy saw as an opportunity. Things were bleak and inspiration was hard to come by. But Jimmy, he had charisma in spades. And those around him knew it. In a short period of time, Jimmy was able to increase membership nearly 20-fold with his blunt, take-charge attitude and knack for leadership. It was also around this time that Jimmy forged relationships that provided a healthy dose of controversy for the rest of his life, and perhaps even led to his disappearance. These relationships came on the heels of a brief romance-turned-friendship with a woman named Sylvia Pagano. Through Sylvia, Jimmy met Frank Coppola, a mafia boss from Sicily. Through Coppola, Jimmy met Santo Peroni, the chief union buster in Detroit, fresh out of prison. Major companies often hired mobsters like Peroni and Coppola to break up strikes. Peroni's men used clubs to beat up striking union workers, which then allowed strike breakers to cross picket lines and get inside the factories. In Jimmy's mind, his budding friendship with mobsters allowed him to fight fire with fire. If major corporations were going to use mobsters against strikers, why shouldn't the union use mobsters against the corporations? By the time Jimmy was approaching his mid-twenties, he'd made quite a name for himself. He was the guy who could solve your problems, who would fight your fights and see that justice, that fairness, would see the light of day. His charisma attracted people to the local Teamsters. A group of laundry workers sought Jimmy out for some help in organizing a strike of their own. Among the group was a 17-year-old immigrant by the name of Josephine Posywack. She immediately caught Jimmy's eye. It was love at first sight. Just a few months later, the two were married and building a life together. Personality-wise, they were like night and day. Jimmy was a stickler who never touched alcohol, while Josephine was a free spirit and life of the party. Yet their partnership worked. She was the yin to his yang. In 1935, the passing of the National Labor Relations Act allowed workers the right to organize sit-down strikes. A sit-down strike refers to a strike in which employees occupy their workplace and sit at their stations while refusing to work. This prevents employers from replacing them with new workers or strike breakers. In 1937, Detroit witnessed sit-down strikes firsthand. Woolworths was what they called a five-and-dime store. They offered a wide variety of items for extremely low prices and actually set the course for how much of our commerce is done today. 
The Woolworth sit-down strike began shortly after a strike against General Motors up the road in Flint, Michigan. Though things got violent in Flint, police were involved and the mafia were paid to scare off would-be strikers and rough them up. However, the striking workers caught the attention of the local government, and the governor sent in the National Guard to protect them. The GM strike was ultimately successful, so the women of Woolworths held their own sit-down strike in February. The owner of the company, Frank Woolworth, was fairly vocal about his stance on wages. His products were cheap, so his labor expenditures should be too. Understandably, his employees disagreed. As they do now, the labor unions operated to support their workers. They sought fair wages, safe conditions, and reasonable hours. In the 1930s, these goals sometimes felt like a pipe dream, but these unions strove to define the value of their constituents and demand the respect and action of employers. The Woolworth sit-in was a big one and set off a string of sit-ins throughout the area. Jimmy actively participated in these local strikes. He often returned home banged up from striking, only to patch himself up and go back out to the streets. He wasn't going to back down from a fight especially if it meant defending the rights of laborers to a fair wage and safe working conditions. It was during the sit-down strikes that Jimmy's relationship with mobsters Frank Coppola and Santo Peroni began to pay off. At the time, members of the mafia were almost always involved in disputes, whether it be someone buying weapons from them or hiring them as muscle. At any given time in any debate, someone had them on the payroll. By the time the various strikes of 1937 were over, Mob families began getting involved in union-governed industries like trucking. This development didn't help the negative views of organized labor in the eyes of many important figures. People like Henry Ford talked about unions as if they would bring about the corruption of our country and the literal end of the world. That kind of hyperbolic rhetoric was shared by many and did little to help organized laborers achieve their goals, which, let us not forget, were essentially just fair compensation for their work and safe work conditions. The knockdown, dirty way of handling their own problems at times may have alienated Jimmy and other organized laborers from government officials, but it served as a badge of pride for the Teamsters. Well, there's definitely something freeing and empowering about being able to stand up for yourself and not shy away at the first sign of potential defeat. And Jimmy was definitely not one to let fear or a difficult road distract him from his mission. It wasn't just about showing up when things were rough, fighting the big fights. For Jimmy, every single aspect of the union was important to him. He took it upon himself to educate members on their rights and what they should be expecting from employers. He wanted these people to know what they were fighting for and know their worth. To many, he became a hero. In the aftermath of the 1937 strikes, Jimmy was elevated to president of the local. The following year, Jimmy and Josephine welcomed their first child, Barbara Ann. A few years later, a brother, James Philip Hoffa, joined Barbara. Jimmy's personal achievements came alongside his public ones. As his family grew, so did the Teamsters. From there, Jimmy found himself busier. He had more followers and supporters, but still had enemies too. As the Second World War picked up steam, so did Jimmy. In 1940, he became vice president of the Central States Drivers' Council, and in 1942, he became the president of the Michigan Conference of Teamsters. With the conference presidency under his belt, his reach was dramatically widened. 
He was suddenly in cahoots with unions in 20 different states and was the go-to guy for help across the country. His ability to organize and ignite passion was unparalleled, and his position catapulted him to national recognition. However, Hoffa was willing to use his mafia connections against not just big companies, but also rival unions and lower-level Teamsters members who objected to Hoffa's violent tactics and dictatorial tendencies. An investigative journalist named Victor Riesel tangled with Hoffa in his efforts to bring light to the growing mafia influence in the labor unions. Riesel's father, Nathan, was a proud union organizer who tried to fight the mafia's infiltration into the unions. He died in 1947 due to complications from a beatdown he suffered at the hands of mafia thugs. Nathan's son, Victor, never forgot his father's death at the hands of the mafia. He became a crusader for the average working man and strove to educate the public about criminals within the union's ranks. By the 1950s, Victor was using his radio show to go after corrupt union leaders. In the spring of 1956, Victor featured members of Hoffa's union on his show who complained about his leadership. On April 5, 1956, Victor had finished his radio broadcast and was leaving a restaurant known as Lindy's when a man he didn't know calmly walked up to him and threw sulfuric acid into his eyes. Victor was permanently blinded and disfigured. He had to wear dark glasses for the rest of his life to hide his ruined eyes. Jimmy did not have much compassion for the poor reporter and was quoted as saying, that son of a bitch Victor Riesel, he just had some acid thrown on him. It's too bad he didn't have it thrown on the goddamn hands he types with. But while Jimmy didn't care about what happened to Victor, the nation was outraged by the attack. The public wanted justice. The FBI identified Victor's attacker as Abe Telvey, but were unable to arrest him. Abe was murdered by the men who had hired him, and his corpse was found with a bullet to the head on July 28, 1956. However, the FBI were able to arrest the other conspirators in the plot to blind Victor, and one of them was Jimmy's friend, Johnny Dio, an infamous labor racketeer. The plot to blind Victor led the United States Senate to begin a series of televised hearings about the Mafia's infiltration into the labor unions and their leadership. These hearings were eventually nicknamed the McClellan Committee Hearings, after Senator McClellan, the committee's leader. They began in 1957. The committee's chief lawyer interrogating the labor union leaders was a man who would end up in a lifelong blood feud with Hoffa, Bobby Kennedy. Jimmy was called before the Senate to answer questions about his relationship with Johnny Dio. But Jimmy was evasive in his answers to Bobby Kennedy's questions. He frequently offered famously indecipherable answers like this one, quote, To the best of my recollection, I must recall on my memory, I cannot remember, end quote. Bobby Kennedy couldn't get any solid answers out of Hoffa and eventually deemed him, quote, the most powerful man in the country next to the president. And Bobby was determined to take away that power from what he viewed as a corrupt individual. Jimmy became concerned that Bobby was going to find out about some of his shadier businesses during the McClellan committee hearings. One business Jimmy didn't want Bobby knowing about was a car hauler company that Hoffa had opened in his wife's name called Test Fleet. He made a deal with a Cadillac car carrier to fire a bunch of Teamsters the carrier had contracts with and hire Test Fleet instead. 
Hoffa's wife made over $150,000 in a decade, even though she didn't actually work at the company. Another business Jimmy wanted kept secret was a Florida land deal into which Hoffa had sunk $400,000 of union money in order to earn a profit for himself. And most importantly, Hoffa didn't want Bobby Kennedy finding out about the Teamsters pension fund he had created in 1955, which he used to loan money to his mafia friends like Johnny Dio. To get the heat off himself, Hoffa decided to leak information about union president David Beck to Bobby Kennedy. He was able to get David Beck's attorney to violate attorney-client privilege and pass on the damning information to Bobby's team. And after Jimmy got Beck removed from power by leaking information to Kennedy on Beck's corrupt dealings, Jimmy took his place as president of the union. While Hoffa did succeed in refocusing the committee on Beck at the time, his strategy backfired on him at the end. Years later, in 1972, Walter Sheridan, a prosecutor for the McClellan committee hearings who worked side by side with Bobby Kennedy, published a book about the hearings and revealed that Hoffa had leaked information on Beck. In the eyes of Hoffa's mafia friends, this made Hoffa a snitch, someone they could never really trust. And it may have been one of the key reasons why Hoffa disappeared. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now let's continue the story. In the late 1950s, Jimmy Hoffa was constantly afraid that Bobby Kennedy would find out his secrets. In February 1957, he tried to bribe a lawyer named John Chiesty into taking a job as an investigator for the McClellan Committee and using his vantage point to spy on Bobby Kennedy. Instead, Chiesty reported Hoffa's scheme to Bobby Kennedy. Kennedy tricked Hoffa into thinking Chiesty went through with Hoffa's plan of being a mole on the Senate committee. Instead, Chiesty helped the FBI catch Hoffa, giving him $2,000 in bribe money. Hoffa was arrested and put on trial for bribery in June of 1957. Yet, despite a seemingly slam-dunk case, Hoffa was able to secure an acquittal by convincing the jury that he was a champion of civil rights. Jimmy was a civil rights supporter, but this trial was all about optics and making himself look good to the largely black jury. He hired a black female lawyer and also hired boxer Joe Lewis to pretend to be his friend and stay and watch the trial. The optics worked. Hoffa was acquitted. Bobby was furious that Hoffa had gotten away, scot-free. The two men loathed each other. Kennedy viewed Hoffa as corrupt, and Hoffa viewed Kennedy as a man born with a silver spoon in his mouth who had everything in life handed to him. Bobby got another chance to bring Hoffa down in November of 1957, after he caught Hoffa illegally wiretapping the union offices. When Hoffa lied about the wiretapping, this allowed Bobby to charge him with perjury. Hoffa was scared someone would spill the dirt on him, just like he had done with Beck to save his own skin. But a jury acquitted Hoffa on the wiretapping, and the courts dismissed the perjury charge. Once again, Hoffa had bested Bobby Kennedy. The McClellan committee hearings ended, and the committee dissolved on March 31, 1960. But in November of that year, Bobby's brother John won the presidential election, turning the power tables. When President-elect John F. Kennedy appointed his brother Bobby as the new attorney general, Bobby was sure he'd be able to bring Jimmy down. 
he gathered together a team of lawyers and investigators that he nicknamed the Get Hoffa Squad. Sadly, in 1963, JFK was assassinated. While the nation mourned, Jimmy celebrated the downfall of his enemies, the Kennedys. When an employee of Jimmy's tried to fly the flag at half-mast in mourning, Jimmy fired him. Wow, he really did hate them. It was not his kindest moment, but Jimmy was focused on helping American families who didn't inherit the Kennedys' money and power. True. In 1964, Jimmy handled a game-changing agreement that would soon see wages doubled or tripled and health benefits available for the entirety of a union member's family. This would help thousands of regular Americans. It was known as the National Master Freight Agreement. Seeing it through was one of Jimmy's biggest accomplishments. But less than a week after his success with the National Master Freight Agreement, Jimmy was sentenced to eight years in prison for jury tampering. Then, the next year, in 1965, he was sentenced to five more years, charged with fraud and conspiracy. Bobby and Jimmy had played proverbial chess for years, but Bobby Kennedy was finally able to have the last laugh. At this point, Jimmy was in his 50s with nearly grown children. His legal team brought up appeal after appeal for the next three years, keeping him out of prison. Throughout the lengthy process, Jimmy was adamant about his innocence and maintained the support of his followers. In fact, he even ran for re-election and was once again named president of the Teamsters. But eventually, he needed to serve out his sentence. Sentenced to 13 years, he began serving his time in 1967. Jimmy moved into the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, a high-security prison in Pennsylvania. While behind bars, Jimmy's nemesis, Bobby Kennedy, was assassinated on June 6, 1968. Once again, Jimmy did not mourn alongside the nation. Jimmy used his time in prison to read anything and everything that he had access to. It seems that wherever Jimmy was, he was going to work hard and surround himself with people who wanted change. Prison wasn't going to be any different than the streets of Detroit in that respect. Over the course of his sentence, Jimmy was denied parole quite a few times. Finally, with Richard Nixon in the White House, Jimmy was offered a deal. If Jimmy stepped down as president of the Teamsters and agreed to stay away from union-related work for the rest of the decade, he would be released and could keep the union pension he worked so hard to create. In 1971, Jimmy took the deal. Ultimately, Jimmy served less than half of his 13-year sentence. His release served as a welcome Christmas present to his family and was soon followed by another gift in the form of a $1.7 million Teamster pension. Jimmy was a free man and his most notable enemies were gone, but he was unable to do what he loved most, work or be part of the International Brotherhood of the Teamsters. So, Jimmy decided to fight the statutes of his release. But even with the Watergate scandal on everyone's mind, the courts found that Nixon was well within his rights to impose sanctions on Jimmy's release. Jimmy had no choice but to stay away from union work. Even though Nixon was technically to blame for Jimmy's current predicament, he was never on the receiving end of Hoffa's vitriol. Jimmy's anger was reserved for Frank Fitzsimmons, the then-acting president of the Teamsters. Jimmy and Fitzsimmons were friends for years, but Jimmy believed Fitzsimmons had double-crossed him and cozied up to Nixon in order to solidify his control over the union and keep Jimmy powerless. Well, this wasn't something Jimmy swallowed easily. 
Jimmy had plucked Pennsylvania-born Frank from obscurity on his rise to the top, and this was how he was repaid? It was clear that both Fitzsimmons and Nixon were in cahoots to keep him away from the IBT, but Jimmy wasn't going to make it easy for them. Entering his 60s, Jimmy never lost his desire to fight for what he believed was rightfully his. Angry at being forced out of power, Jimmy allegedly began threatening to expose members of the mafia in the union and clear out corrupt union members. Jimmy's old mafia friends were not happy to hear that he was talking about ratting them out. They didn't want to lose access to that pension money that Jimmy had been providing them for investments all of these years. Jimmy was playing a dangerous game, and it was unlikely that he would come out victorious. A narrow chance of victory had never kept Jimmy down before, and it wasn't about to happen now. He'd always managed to etch out a win, even when the odds were stacked against him. Which is why, in 1975, when a New Jersey Teamster leader and mob member, Anthony Provenzano, a.k.a. Tony Pro, asked Jimmy to meet for a lunch meeting to bury their grievances, he thought nothing of it. Jimmy had a falling out with Tony Pro that stretched back to a time they both spent in prison. Tony Pro was angry that Jimmy got to keep his pension fund, but didn't help Tony Pro find a way to keep his. On July 30, 1975, Jimmy drove to the Matches Red Fox restaurant. It was the last time Jimmy was ever seen. What happened to Jimmy Hoffa is a question law enforcement, relatives, and journalists have been asking for over 40 years. What is known is that Jimmy thought he was going to meet with mob player Anthony Giacalone and Tony Pro. But it doesn't just stop there. According to Jimmy's wife, he sat alone in the restaurant for over half an hour, waiting for his guests to join him. He was notorious for being on time and despised a late show, yet here he was, stood up. Tired of waiting, frustrated, and feeling disrespected, Jimmy called home. He told his wife he'd give them a little bit more time to show up, but then he'd be home. It's unclear who showed up that day, but Jimmy was seen getting into a car with several men. When Jimmy didn't come home that night, his family immediately reported him missing. His son James had been concerned for Jimmy's safety for quite some time, and it seems his worst fears were coming to life. The two Anthonys Jimmy was set to meet that day at the Matches Red Fox both denied the plans. Any and all leads ran dry. The investigation remained open for quite some time. Jimmy was not declared dead until 1982. Where's Jimmy Hoffa buried? I mean, that's the question that always is asked every time uh, somebody brings up law enforcement. And, you know, you always like to get the body in a homicide case. You always want to find out what happened. Jimmy's rise to power and disappearance is one that still gains traction today. Every few years, someone comes forward with a whisper of information that set the FBI out on further investigations. There are a plethora of theories and countless conspiracy theories involving this mystery. Some believe the Mafia killed Jimmy. Some think he was killed by friends and buried in Giant Stadium. Others think he met his end in a factory by way of a meat grinder. A Mafia hitman named Frank Sheeran, nicknamed the Irishman due to his Irish-American heritage, claimed on his deathbed that he killed Hoffa by shooting him twice in the back of the head in an empty house. However, police have been unable to verify Sheeran's story. A book covering Sheeran's confession is being adapted into a movie by Martin Scorsese and is slated for release in 2018. 
The truth is, we don't know who killed Jimmy Hoffa, and it's unlikely that we ever will. One thing is certain. Someone wanted Jimmy out of the picture, and they were willing to go to any length to see him silenced. But even though Jimmy disappeared, his legacy lives on through his monumental accomplishments for union workers. His work ethic and passion live on in his son, James P. Hoffa, the current president of the International Brotherhood of the Teamsters. Jimmy's influence is visible in every trip to the grocery store and in every trucker you pass on the freeway. He was a voice for the common laborer and their right to the American dream. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe, you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I know, it seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks again for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Blythe Ann Johnson and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.